0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Region 3 MAP Center's anti-racism Podcast series, which aims to advance anti-racist efforts and support anti-racist activities within school communities across and beyond the MAP Center's 13-state region within a succinct 20-minute discussion led by anti-racist practitioners.
1: Anti-Racism podcast episode is focused on the importance of anti-racist practices considering other intersecting oppressed identities, including national origin, religion, sexual orientation, gender nonconformity, and disability.
0: Thanks, Nikki. So uh, my name is Tiffany Kaiser, and I serve as the Associate Director of Outreach and Engagement uh, with the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, which I'll refer to moving forward as the MAP Center. I have the privilege of serving as your host for today, and I'm joined with uh, my fellow co-host, Nikki Coomer, who just framed uh, today's focus. Nikki is a doctoral research assistant with the MAP Center.
1: Great, thanks, Tiffany. We're also thrilled to have two guests who not only are tremendous scholars and practitioners in educational equity work, but also will lead us in affirming and deepening our understanding of anti-racism at the intersections in our school communities. So joined with us today are Gilmada Villanova-Mitchell, who is an equity consultant for the Heartland Area Education Agency in Iowa, and Robert Lampley, a civil rights attorney in Ohio.
0: So I want to kick us off with Robert with the first prompt, which is why is intersectionality so important to understand when working to be anti-racist? And then Gilmada, after Robert shares, feel free to build off of Uh, Robert's
2: insights. So good morning, um, everyone. I think the first underlying idea of being anti-racist is understanding that racism is malleable and that we can deconstruct racism because it's something that's formed. And so we have to really work to do some uncovering of what is at the root of racism and then helping to um, understand that people can change their ideas about race. And I think in terms of when we think about um, intersectionality, I think it's so important to understand uh, how to work through anti-racism is firstly just understanding that there is a stratification of oppression. And so that there are multiple um, identities that people that face and suffer under racism that they hold. So we look at gender, we look at um, gender expression, we look at sexual orientation, we look at all of these different things and how they shape the experience of those that um, experience racism. And so through that lens, we're able to really uncover the things that we need to do in order to be anti-racist. And so it's like not um, engaging in work that doesn't really hit at the core of what's happening. So you don't want to ignore all of these other converging things that may impact how people experience racism. Um, And it also really takes a, a full acknowledgement of the modalities of race and racism in our country. Um, to form a holistic strategy or approach um, to eradicating racism in this country. And so um, at the core of uh, anti-racism is really work looking at how we can structure things so that they truly look at the full experience of people. I think that when you want to be anti-racist, you want to be a person that is working within systems that look at the full picture of what's happening to people that experience racism. And so I always use this analogy when I talk about racism, that it's a sore and that if we want to heal the sore, we can put a band-aid over it and then what happens is is that we just are creating a barrier to its exposure. And so, to truly heal racism, we have to dig into the core of that sore, and we have to root out all of the different things that may impact. So, the bacterias, um, anything that would help to help, excuse me, anything that would help that sore to kind of fester and grow. And so, I think when you acknowledge intersectionality, you're also acknowledging the fact that this sore is multi-layered, that it has these different components, and that a true response will be figuring out a way to have all of that exposed so that it can truly heal. Racism, you know, in our country, it encompasses a lot of that a lot of those identities at the margins. And so again, it is about that ecosystem. And so we can't really truly have some strategies for an ecosystem where we don't take in all the conditions of that ecosystem.
3: Got it. Thank you. Jamada, any,
0: any insights you want to build on top of that?
3: I think Robert did a really good job. The one thing I do want to add is that when we think about intersectionality and the combination of these different social and political elements that make us who we are and are a part of our identity, I think it's important to recognize that they can only—they can not only create systems of disadvantage in how you're positioned, but also of privilege, depending on what's your identity. And so I think a lot of times when we, consider intersectionality, we go straight to disadvantage, and sometimes the combination of different social and political elements that make the individual who they are um, end up creating a system of uh, privilege and advantage.
0: Thank you for that, um, Jomada. This idea of... the complexity of our own multiple identities versus the complexity of possessing one or more historically marginalized identity is what you're getting at. That this idea of multiple identity should not be conflated with intersectional identities or intersectionality. And so um, as we move to engage in anti-racist practice in our school communities and beyond, I really appreciate the point of not shifting the gaze solely on those that are suffering multiple intersecting and overlapping oppressions because of being a a person of color at the intersection of other identities, sexual orientation, national origin, religion, i.e. if I am a black, Muslim, disabled, queer person, um, how I show up as a person of color with non-Christian identities with a disability uh, with uh, not aligning to sort of heteronormative or heterosexuality uh, is important because folks who also are are persons of color may not possess those additional marginalized identities and so my experience um, or someone's experience I should say with those identities um, are different than someone else who might be a person, a person of color with other identities. So I appreciate that. And the, the propensity, if we're not aware of that, to engage in harmful practices of othering others, right? Mm-hmm. And um, to, um, I think what, what I heard and what I appreciated from you, Jomada, is this idea of not recognizing our, our own identities in particular our dominant or privileged identities while simultaneously possessing perhaps non-dominant identities or if I'm a white person who is able-bodied and straight, recognizing that the layers of engaging in anti-racist practice um, are different and unique uh, for different contexts and situations. So I appreciate that. Finally, the thing I'll say is that stands in the way of solidarity is what I'm hearing from the both of you, is that not being aware of how other historically marginalized identities are deeply woven into the ideological, to Robert's point, root or roots of of racist structures and institutions is 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 really crucial. So I appreciate that, Jill Mata. On the second reflective prompt, so we've talked a lot, sort of high level, <laughs> a little bit more abstract, and so want you to kind of help us think through what are some concrete or key practices that we can engage in to be anti-racist from your perspective. And then um, Robert, I'll ask you to to share um, any, any insights from that as well.
3: Sure, so before I share some practices that I find helpful, I want to uh, build some background around what I'm gonna say. There are beliefs I have about how how we go about anti-racist work in our own lives. One is um, there is no neutral on this bus. So even if you are an individual filled with good intentions, as I believe most of people are, if you're not actively acting, you are you are helping oppressive systems stay in place and there is no neutral on this bus or you are being anti-racist or you're not doing something to uh, disrupt systems of inequity and um, racism. The other uh, strong belief I hold is that there are two, there are two focuses for this work and they are equally as important. One is um, the, the, inter, the, the personal journey you have to embark when you want to become an anti-racist person. And that's really learning about your culture, your identities, your background, and your implicit biases and your blind spots and how you exclude others and what kinds of, um, of racism do you carry with you? And and the other part of the journey is more the systems work and how are you going to tackle um, um, disrupting systems of oppression and racist practices. And so these are two different kinds of work, but I think they are very interconnected. I do think we need to focus on both sides of the work when we are to become an anti-racist person. Um, and so the first step I always recommend to people and I try to do myself is to learn about history, the history of race in this country, uh, white supremacy history, and understand how we have been dealing with the systems of uh, oppression for hundreds of years and how they have been interwoven in everything that is part of our existence, such as voting, and the way we structure our political system, and our educational system, and our healthcare system, um, and so really, uh, and our our um, land possession opportunities, you know, and understanding those things really help you position yourself in a way that you can make informed decisions when you are being a citizen, when you are voting, when you are trying to work with your banks, with your Healthcare organizations, as a patient, you know when you are attending school events for your family's um, um, kids, and and so I do think that understanding the historical context of race oppression and white supremacy is the number one step. Then, as I said, understanding um, what you bring to the table in terms of. Um, RACISM AND HOW DO YOU EXCLUDE PEOPLE FROM DIFFERENT RACES THAN YOURS AND WHAT KINDS OF EXPERIENCES HAVE LED YOU TO FORM SOME STEREOTYPES, SOME BLIND SPOTS THAT YOU ARE NOT um, INTENTIONAL ABOUT MITIGATING THE EFFECTS OF WHEN YOU uh, APPROACH OTHERS, INCLUDE OTHERS. AND SO uh, I THINK THAT'S REALLY uh, REVEALING THIS KIND OF WORK WHEN YOU REALLY TAKE TIME TO EXAMINE, YOU KNOW, I'm making some assumptions here about this person, what could be happening and really dive deeper into that to understand that maybe there is a pattern here. Maybe I am racist, you know, and I don't even know about it. And so understanding what you bring to the table and how you're filtering information about others and how you include and exclude them is really important. Um, That's not easy work to do, but there are lots of resources out there to identify your implicit bias. There's the I the, the implicit association test that Harvard has, that it's completely free that you can take. And really keeping a journal every time you struggle with a connection helps you so that you can start looking at the demographics and thinking, oh, wow, I do have an issue. And uh, part of that is really connecting and building strong trusting relationships with people who are different from you. So I usually take inventory of my close relationships, my top th- top five trusted people in my life, to see what what are their races? What are their gender identity? What is their sexual orientation? What is their ethnicity? Am I being uh, inclusive in the way I select the people who have the most influence in my life? And and it's really important that we stretch ourselves and go outside our comfort zone because our brain wants people who are like us to be in our top five trusted circle we want to have people who are different from us because they will add a perspective we don't have and help us advance our anti-racist work even further when they are having a huge impact in our decision making in our, you know, uh, brainstorming about daily um, issues that we run into.
2: That was such a rich response to that question. And so Um, I don't have much to add, but um, when we think about this idea of, um, you know, having a seat at the table, I always like to tell people that when we think about equity, when we think about being anti-racist, we first have to say, wait a minute, let's take a step back. Because when we just offer people a seat at the table, typically that's only offering them a same kind of inclusivity in a system that hasn't changed. So it could be part of this kind of, you know, Attempt to provide some type of access, but that access isn't really effectual because it's in the same kind of oppressive system. So I like to think about having people invited to form the table. So asking, what do we need? Do we need a long table, a short table, a table that accounts for people who may not be able to reach you know, high enough, you know, as we are kind of forming our idea of inclusivity, I think it really takes a look at what intersectionality is so that we can include a form in a place in which people really can do some work together. And in addition to all of those wonderful things that were brought out in terms of about how we include, um, people's, um, understanding, you know, who's dominant and who's not dominant in these type of relationships as we are trying to do anti-racist work. It's just really important to not only ask marginalized people what they need, but also provide them with an opportunity to fully participate in the work. And I think that more times than not, it becomes a volunteer project as people are trying to do kind of anti-racist work. And that is problematic because it centers them in terms of their actions and what they're doing for people. And it doesn't allow them to kind of draw back and ask what's needed, but it, it really just refocuses the energy in a way in which I think is is really harmful. And I think anything that's going to be anti-racist is going to be centered on having a vantage point from those in which you are trying to help and and, and being at the the margins with them in terms of understanding who they truly are and then what you can and how the practices you can engage in that will truly help to, you know, make things, you know, more equitable and, and more um, power sharing. And I think that's one of the big things too, is that we have power, but we have to really understand how we can distribute that in ways in which is um, confirming to people's identities um, and also really honors who they are as people in terms of um, facing their facing and combating and fighting against their own oppression.
1: Thank you both for your um, comments and your, uh, you know, and the opportunity to really deepen our understandings of what not only what intersectionality is in anti-racist work, but also what uh, how to get there, right? What the steps may be in in moving toward um, intersectional anti-racist action. So something I heard from both um, Robert and uh, Jamara are is this idea of. Um, I guess, like the line right between systems and then into individuals and how to engage in action that can uh, really travel that line right between our micro social interactions and then into macro spheres that really address institutions. And I think getting, you know, in between those spaces right between personal and hyper local and then into uh, institutional change. Um, is uh, really relevant to this idea that there's, um, you know, the spaces that we occupy that are um, maybe marginalized, um, but also subordinating other folks as well, right? So how, um, you know, really what that means, the, the complexity of of marginalization through different identities and embodied experiences. So thank you so much, thank you both so much for the opportunity to really uh, think about that dive into it and then think through what action may look like all right so as we move forward to wrap up our conversation i just want to highlight um, some resources that are in our online equity resource library at uh, GreatLakesEquity.org. Uh, for an array of resources and supports related to anti-racist practice. So one of the resources that you'll find on our website um, is our uh, virtual little library for staying connected, um, produced and developed by Dr. Tasia Gonzalez and Hunter Brown. We also have on our website, um, this is a relatively new feature. We have resources from our equity fellows coupled with a short course and a short assessment at the end of the course. So if you're looking for some professional learning um, opportunities relative to the expertise of our Equity Fellows, you can find that on our website. And then lastly, we have our podcast series that are also developed both by our in-house staff as well as our Equity Fellows. You can find this on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So also don't forget to follow us on social media. Um, We have uh, a Twitter account as well as a Facebook account Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Great Lakes EAC or Great Lakes EAC and please feel free to share uh, what you learned here today by uh, tweeting at us and tagging it with math equity Um, and also don't forget to like us on Facebook to keep. um, To keep abreast of uh, our upcoming events, um, as well as resources.
0: Yeah, thanks, Nikki. And I just want to close us out by thanking Jomada and Robert for your time, your expertise, um, your labor. We deeply appreciate you being a part of the 20-minute talk.
1: This resource was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to our publications, click on the subscribe to our publications link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center, is funded by the United States Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout our 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This product and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank the Indiana University School of Education Indianapolis at IEPY, as well as Executive Director Dr. Kathleen king Director of Operations Dr. Sina Skelton, and Associate Director Dr. Tiffany Kaiser for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.